So on Friday night, Elmwood Avenue has not looked so 50-something cool in a long time. We were all going to the Boomtown Rats in the Mandela Hall. The Boomtown Rats. I went because my mate kind of conned me into it in a sort of a, a lax moment on Facebook way back in September. I have no idea what music we were talking about, but he said, I see the rats are coming, we should go. I said, yeah, we should. And then he bought tickets, so there I was. Could have done without it, to be truthful. But then, in we went. I went for the nostalgia. And as I was coming down the stairs before we left, Boomtown Rats in our house, there was someone looking at you, and she's so modern and like clockwork that we listened to when the kids were, were growing up. So I started to back out these hits, and I started to think, yeah, this'll be, this'll be, this'll be pretty good. But I was going for nostalgia and some machine gun hits, and they were amazing. And uh, the amazing thing is that the Boomtown Rats, for those who are interested, uh, started out as a kind of a blues thing, and then when punk and pop kind of blended, Bob knew how to sell a single. But now, when they're in their 60s, they're kind of getting back into that blues thing. So it was this, there was very little punk, it was much more blues, but he, he did have the odd swear word, and at one stage he pitched the swearing at priests and vicars, and uh, a few people around me were giving me the look, but uh, I hung in. And then, something quite remarkable happened. Well, for me, not for anybody else. Nobody else noticed. He's singing Looking After Number One, which was the band's first <clears throat> single, which I bought because it was kind of getting into the new wave, but punk was a wee bit too hardcore for me, and I liked the melody, and I bought Looking After Number One. So it was my song as a 16, 15, 16-year-old. 16 that was my song. And I come back to it in 1985 during Live Aid. Let's go back into that moment where Geldof's feeding the world, literally. And I went back to that song in 1985. Don't give me love thy neighbour. Don't give me charity. Don't give me peace and love or the good Lord above. You get in the way with your stupid ideas. The guy who sang, Don't give me love your neighbour and don't give me charity, fed the world. And in his biography I actually said that he felt that God looked down and said, this is the guy who says, don't give me God the Lord above and will call himself an atheist. In his biography, he said that it was as if God looked down and thought, who's the least likely? Oh, there's that scruffy punk from Dublin, I'll knock his door. I think he was closer to the truth there than even Geldof himself knew. Anyway, it wasn't 1985 I was thinking about on Friday night. He started to sing at the end of the song words that I hadn't really heard for 30 years. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to live like you. I don't want to talk like you. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like me. And suddenly in that moment, I realized that I'd never realized before how influential those words were on my entire life. Because as a 16-year-old who didn't believe in God, that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be like anybody else. I wanted to find out who me was, who I was, and what I had to do on this planet. I didn't want to get caught in the rat trap that everybody else had been caught in. 
but had forgotten all that. Because a year later, maybe two, Jesus, the Lord above, as Geldof sings about, didn't come into my life to stop me finding who the me was. Jesus came into my life to open the door to allow me to go through it and find out who the me was. Who he created me to be. Who he redeemed me to be on the cross. And I realized that that militant sentiment of Geldof's in being himself was right there on the 17-year-old teenager who found Jesus. And who, all those years later, was as far as I'm aware, apart from the 15 from the Balamina Presbytery that I fought over at the merchandise stall for the right t-shirt, I'm joking, the only Presbyterian minister in the room. Because I still don't want to be like anybody but the one that Jesus redeemed me to be. And I say that because as I read John chapter 9, I saw somebody else with a similar journey to me. Because the Geldof moment that shaped who I am as a 55-year-old happened before I had any idea who Jesus was in my life. And this guy in John 9, I love this chapter, because this guy in John 9 doesn't know what's going on for 31 verses after the interruption first begins. Now my first interruption of God's grace, the holiness that Anna talked about that is separate from us and then suddenly becomes into the midst of us was as a six or a seven year old when watching the television one day before the football on a Sunday and I've told you all before, this guy, it wasn't Paul Clark but it was those before him and his industry, this guy asked somebody in the seat beside him, do you believe in God? I was seven, I moved when I was seven and a half, so it was, it was six or seven, and it was in the old house, and I remember thinking, do I believe in God? Do I believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. And so for the next ten years, I didn't believe in God. And Geldof came in, and some other songs, but the Geldof song lingers now, when I think about it. So there was this interruption moment for me, as a six-year-old, because we didn't go to church, yeah, I went to Sunday school, but... So where was I ever going to have that interruption of the holy breaking into my life? And as I look back on it now, that was my verse 6 or 7. No, I wasn't healed from anything. But in that moment of that question, do you believe in God? The whole of my life took this journey to where I am now, standing up believing in God. And I'm not sure as a 17-year-old I would have been thinking about the question had it not come in as a 6-year-old. Because from then on, I was telling my mates I didn't believe in God. From then on, I was giving the Christians a hard time because I thought they were stupid. I wasn't passive. I was active. And it was being actively asking the question or questioning the question that eventually brought me around as a 17-year-old in verse 38 to opening this door to faith. God interrupts us. Maybe a long time before he fully reveals himself to us. Grace and holiness come into our lives even sometimes when we're unaware of that's what it is. And that's what happens in John 9. In verse 7, 
This blind man who actually at that stage of the chapter is just a theological discussion. He's not actually a person at all. This guy here, why is he blind? Well, he, is he blind because of what he did? Or is he blind because of what his parents did? Or did he do something in the womb that caused his blindness? Because some of them believed you could do that. Well, what, what, let's have a talk about the argument. And they're, <clears throat> they're talking about the argument and they're paying no attention to the man. He's not a human soul at all. He's just a theological conundrum. But then Jesus breaks in and says he's blind so that I can do what I'm about to do, which is show the power of God and the holiness of God coming into the life of somebody through a wee bit of mud in his eyes. You remember that story in the Old Testament of Naaman? Well, here it is right in front of you right now, and I'm going to watch you. You're going to see it happen. Go and wash yourself. And then he gets sight, verse 7. Jesus disappears. He's out of the picture for the next part of it because the next part of it is this amazing discussion. And the blind man, I want to meet him in heaven because he is the funniest dude you've ever come across in your life. He is taking the mickey out of these Pharisees. Something shocking. It's absolutely great. Trevor Moore told me a story once. He said he was... The Garda. Nobody's, nobody here at the top of the Garda. It's just that one day I had a go at the Garda. And Heather Carey says to me as she closed the window, do you, do you know Mary? And I said, no, I've never met her before. She says, well, that's the highest ranking woman in the Garda, just after I'd given the Garda a wild hard time. And Trevor Mora tells this story about the Garda stopping one of his congregation in Lucan. <clears throat> And he's in a grumpy mood, this Garda man, and he's not going to only stop him for speeding, but he's actually going to try and find him for everything that he can. So he actually goes round the car and checks everything in the car, and he checks the insurance, and he checks that it's had its well. There weren't many MOTs in those days in Dublin to start with, but uh, he checks everything. He checks the tyres. He's checking everything. And then he says to the man in the car, the Garda man says to the man in the car, could you just flip the, the, you know, the, the bonnet open? To which the man in the car leans out the window and says, are you thinking of buying it? <laughs> that's a bit like, that's a bit like what's happening here. Do you want to become his disciple too? Are you, he's really, come on, we'll go and find him together. He's having an absolute laugh with these Pharisees. But he still doesn't know who Jesus is. Where is this man? I don't know. I mean, 31 verses, if you take the manuscripts that the gospel writers had at their disposal, is quite a lengthy time from your healing to actually finding out who the person that healed you actually is. But in the middle, this man knows something is going on, that grace has interrupted, that holiness has come down, and that he's somehow included in it. But faith is a journey. And I'm not knocking this, please don't uh, think I'm knocking it, but I might be questioning it. When Campus Crusade said that it took 15 minutes to convert an American, but it took maybe an hour for a Brit, I'm not sure that's the way the Holy Spirit works. Because I was six, and there was a bit of the Boomtown Rats to get through before the final revelation at 17. And this is verse 7. And there's a few verses and debates to go through before we get to 38. Faith is a journey. Where did Peter come to faith? That's a huge question if we want to think about it. And so what I'm saying to us in Fitzroy this morning is, think about your own journey. 
And think about those places before the final revelation when God, the holiness of God, was maybe traveling through your life, nudging into you, pushing into you, caressing your life, pointing you in some direction. But also, you can be interrupters. Interrupters. Like my mate when I was 17 who believed in God when I didn't believe in God, but just lived this life of faith that was very ordinary and shared it with me and made me think about what I thought at six and what Bob Geldof was singing and who this Jesus might be. We can be interrupters to people's lives. You don't have to be the one who drags them through the sinner's prayer. But you can be there for those moments which are very special. But it might not be that we have a sinner's prayer. That it's a journey of faith that we found that somewhere along the line we're aware and we've become to know that we're one of the children of God. This is the journey of faith that we find. We can be interrupters. Food bank can be a moment of interruption. Baby and toddlers can be a moment of interruption. Muriel's Thursday group with refugees can be a moment of interruption. The door or the... Uh, the door that opens or is knocked far more times than it ever was when it was a dark blue door and nobody was inside. I was here for the Historical Society. I had to do something at it, you understand, on Thursday night and the door knocked and three wee Roma kids came in and Roberta gave them some juice. Might be an interruption. Might be an interruption. And then I get an interruption because this guy came to the door who looked like the guy that the police would set aside and maybe do a wee interview for, especially when there'd been a car on the pavement in Britain that week. And I nervously went to the door to maybe open the door to see what was coming. And this man who we would stereotype or have a theological conundrum about held up a ten-pound note and said, uh, I found that just outside. I think maybe somebody dropped it when they got out of their car. Maybe it's somebody at the meetings in here if you can make sure they get it back. Uh-huh. There was an interruption, Steve. But the door is a place for interruptions. We can be interrupting by getting into botanic. We can be interrupting by having frenzy and all these kinds of things. We can be interrupters. But of course, in the bottom line in this story, as I told the kids, the Jesus in the story, because John's into his theology of Jesus and who Jesus was, is the one who is light and gives sight. The blind man gets sight, not only physical sight, but he's again just opening his eyes to the other sight that's going on. Because when the Pharisees are asking him a question, he's got these answers that he hasn't the full revelation. But he's saying, I tell you what, I know that this guy healed me and I know that that should mean something. And you guys don't understand that. What is going on with you? And then he finally gets the revelation. Jesus is opening his spiritual sight as well as his physical. And the Pharisees remain blind to this. What the Pharisees are doing here, their theology is giving them the reality in the world. Their theology is saying, oh, he can't be healed. Because he couldn't have made the mud on a Sunday, or the Sabbath, rather, a Saturday, because that would have been against the law. To have made the mud to put in his eyes. That's why they keep asking, how did he heal you? Because they're trying to catch him out. They're trying to say, well, if he made the mud, then he couldn't have healed you. And if he did it on a Sabbath and it wasn't a life-endangering situation, no, there's no way you can see, because our theology tells us that you can't see. No, 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 no. I can see. No, 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 you can't see. Because our theology tells you that you can't see. No, I can't see. Now, there's no one blinder than those who will not see. 
When our theology becomes that which gives us the reality of what's happening, rather than something that we take the reality of what's happening and begin to caress it and collide it with our theology, then we get it all wrong. Martin McGinnis. How do we see that end of that life? Does our theology give us the reality of it? Or does the reality have to caress and collide with our theology? Could he have been a peacemaker? No, he couldn't have been a peacemaker because he was in the IRA. So how could he have been a peacemaker? Oh, if he was a peacemaker, he must have been doing it for some bizarre reason that would make him a peacemaker. Even though he was getting death threats for being a peacemaker, he couldn't have been doing it to be a peacemaker. He must... In the sort of this week as we were trying to debate that, was there... Some of us who were thinking theologically about it rather than reality about it. What really struck me this week on social media was Trevor Morrow talking about praying with Martin McGuinness. And Martin McGuinness saying he was praying for Trevor Morrow when he went to have his operation um, uh, in his brain in England that was almost a, a life or death that Martin McGuinness was praying for him and he went to storm it to pray with Martin McGuinness and then Jasper, my friend who heads up Summer Madness was invited by the family to the funeral why was he invited to the funeral? because he'd been praying with Martin McGuinness and you suddenly realise there's something going on here that my reality needs to take a kick at this is the reality that somewhere along the journey of Martin McGuinness's life he changed he changed and the change is where we need to start. Not, oh, he couldn't have changed because of her theology, but that he changed. So what does that mean through the caressing and colliding of Scripture? And I guess if we're going to move on in our country, then this chapter is really quite important as to how we see it. Will our theology stop us making peace? Or will the demand for peace cause us to have to Think about some of the theology that's stuck and maybe not right that's going to have to get us to love our neighbour and our enemies, etc. Finally, finally, and some of you are saying, how can this be so long? Because when you left the wedding last night, you said you had nothing to say. Let's look at the souls. Not Theologically discuss them. Jesus didn't see a conundrum with a blind man like the disciples did. He saw someone that needed help. He saw someone that he needed to bring into the family. He saw someone that the holiness and grace of God needed to interrupt. Let's not be full of theological discussions about whether they can or they can't be, or whether of the right theology or they don't have the right theology. That was the blindness of the Pharisees. Let's see every individual in our world, whatever their color, their creed, or their background, as people that the holiness of God says, I am in a high and holy place. But I am with those who are low in spirit and contrite of heart. I love them all, so let's go and be interrupters into their lives to point them to the Jesus that opens our eyes, to help us see to warn us against the dangers and to illuminate us to the truth of who we are in the family of God 
redeemed, created to be, and redeemed by Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to maybe look back on our own journeys of faith today and to see how maybe like the blind man, your holiness and grace interrupted us even long before we had a full understanding of who you were. And then help us to look into ourselves to see the Pharisee that maybe is refusing light, maybe refusing to see what you're doing around us, Maybe needing to relook at some of our beliefs because you speak and change and interrupt. And help us to see human beings around us not as theological discussions but as souls that you love and long to bring to yourself. Help us to be those this week who are particles of light across this city and beyond. Particles of light showing the way to those in the darkness. Maybe even giving warnings to those who need them. Revealing in ourselves and the way we live the truth of your incarnation, your cross, your resurrection. Lord, send us from here as particles of your light for the furtherance of your kingdom. Amen.